Welcome to the Abbott Speaks Podcast. I am your host, Michael Abbott Jr. Thank you for listening, and as always, thank you for making me and my program a part of your busy day. For those of you who are new to the program, you find yourself immersed in the third, well, technically the sixth if we include the prerequisites, but the third installment of the social media series. I am defending my case that social media represents the gravest threat facing modern American culture. I have a ton of material to deliver today, so let's get right to it. I've entitled today's episode, Facebook, The Great Generational Influence Transfer. Your 45-minute road to wisdom begins right now. The Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, is a U.S. government agency whose explicit purpose is to protect investors from dangerous or illegal financial practices. They do this by requiring full and accurate financial disclosures by companies who offer stocks, bonds, mutual funds, or other securities to the general public. That's a curious way to start the third installment of our social media series, isn't it? What does Wall Street have to do with any of this? Well, Facebook... Twitter, and Snapchat are all publicly traded companies. Facebook has a market capitalization of roughly half a trillion dollars, while Twitter and Snapchat are each worth between $20 and $25 billion apiece. Instagram was actually acquired by Facebook in a $736 million deal back in 2012. Every quarter, these companies are mandated by the SEC to file reports presenting their balance sheet and income statement to the investing public. These reports are also to include relevant management discussions and analysis of the company's financial condition, internal controls, key risks to the investor, and any other relevant information. So what type of information would constitute other relevant information? Well, for one, Facebook's annual report for 2017 shows a total of 2.13 billion, with a B, monthly active users a number that grew 14% year over year. This metric, as indicated by the name, measures the number of users who access Facebook at least once in the most recent 30-day period. So what would be a key risk to an investor? Well, the same annual report shows internal estimates that close to one in seven monthly active users is either a fraudulent or duplicate account. So as a protector of the investing American citizen, These are the matters of interest to the SEC. The SEC filings are upwards of 100 pages, and they inundate the potential investor with a litany of information to help aid in the investment decision process. But as I've previously described, Facebook is a company branding itself as far more interested in maximizing the public good of society as opposed to the private financial gain of an individual investor. In fact, this past November, Mark Zuckerberg himself led the Social Network's second annual, quote, Social Good Forum in New York City. At the event, he said, quote, for all the things that are trying to pull people apart, if we can focus on strengthening our community, that will help us find common ground, end quote. Since Zuckerberg was so outspoken with his corporate sacrifice of a dollar and 45 cents, to study the relationship between media technologies, youth development, and well-being, 
Even I feel moved to contribute my two cents to aid in these research efforts. So, Mr. Zuckerberg, if you have an open mind, please allow me to share a small piece of advice that I think will help you massively achieve your goal of attaining social good. You might just be surprised to know that your company is actually already in possession of most of the data necessary to jumpstart your research. So I'll start with a blanket assessment. Mr. Zuckerberg, your company is tremendously effective in analyzing qualitative metrics regarding your user base. But any efforts to analyze the qualitative metrics regarding the substance or their actual posted content are virtually non-existent. Allow me to explain. As you've outlined in your 10K, the SEC quarterly filing, we can easily see that Facebook has 2.13 billion monthly active user accounts, of which 1.4 billion of these are active on a daily basis. You're able to tell us the genders of these account holders and where these people live. You can break down your user base by age. You know the political leanings of your users, their likes, their interests, their hobbies, their spheres of influence. You know their friends, their families, employment histories, educational backgrounds. You know their vacation spots, their favorite movies, favorite sports teams, their love interests. On virtually any data point, you can amass mountains of qualitative data. Businesses desperately want this information for marketing purposes, and your algorithms and aggregation tools can supply more information than these businesses could ever handle. The granularity of this qualitative data is precisely why you have emerged as the leader in 21st century American advertising. In short, you know everything about your users. Your management information systems can produce reports on virtually any qualitative metric imaginable. So long as this information pertains to the user, you can analyze circles around it. But here's the problem. While you have absolutely mastered the qualitative aspect of data aggregation regarding your user base, you have, perhaps consciously, withheld any qualitative data regarding posted content from ever seeing the light of day. You know what piece of information would tremendously benefit society as a whole? Give the general public the daily statistical splits regarding your posted content. For example, show us the dissection of posts by various age groupings. What percentage of all daily Facebook posts are made by people under the age of 18? What about 18 to 24? What percentage of all daily Facebook posts are made by people who live in urban areas? What percentage of daily Facebook posts are made by adults or conser who are conservative? Adults who are liberal, Democrats, Republicans, men women. But more importantly, tell us what percentage of likes originate from young people under the age of 18, or the 18 to 24 demographic, or people living in urban areas, or rural areas, or conservatives, or liberals, or libertarians. Tell us what percentage of likes are made by each of these groups. Unfortunately, with respect to the SEC, all of this would be superfluous information. It's not financial in nature. It's not a key risk to the investor. 
it's largely irrelevant for purposes of rendering an investment decision. So while it is informative, and I will contend shortly, very helpful with respect to society at large, the SEC is not in the business of protecting, preserving, or promoting the welfare of our society, nor should it be. They just protect the investor. Therefore, with no obligation to report any of this data, Facebook and other social media companies are under no pressure and no obligation to give it to the general public. But I contend this is information we absolutely need to see, and I will explain why shortly. But before I do, let me first explain that all of this information would be tremendously easy to obtain. Of course, assuming Facebook had any interest in providing the data. Financially speaking, there is little incentive for them to channel costly resources into this endeavor, however, because most advertisers are not concerned with posted content. Advertisers are concerned with user demographics. Marketers care about who you are. They only care about what you have to say or what you post to the extent that it confirms you remain part of their target market. But if Facebook truly seeks to find common ground that can help repair communities, and I presume it does, as highlighted by Zuckerberg's annual social good forums, the company would have no choice but to educate America with this information. Why? Well, let's make the assumption that the majority of posted content on Facebook stems from the youngest demographics within our culture. Generally speaking, young people are impulsive, they're idealistic, and much like we did when we were teenagers, they tend to measure their self-worth according to observable social validation from others. Facebook's core platform nurtures this vulnerability by allowing them to measure their self-esteem according to the number of likes, shares, hearts, thumbs up, or other such virtual graphics. Facebook encourages the peer validation process, which I will expand upon in a future podcast. For now, be mindful that young people are far more likely to be self-absorbed and they are far more likely to think they are more important than they really are. Who among us doesn't know a child or adolescent who acts as if the world revolves around them? So what if Facebook provided this information, and we came to discover that upwards of 70 or 80% of posted content is created by people under the age of 25? What if 80% of likes or hearts or thumbs up, what if 80% of all of that happened to come from people under the age of 18, 25, or 30. Facebook has all of this information at their fingertips, and they can easily spread it, easily access and present the information to the general public or even their investors. But they don't. Why? Mark Zuckerberg wants to achieve social good, but none of his company's 25,000 employees have ever thought that this information might be helpful to highlight Facebook's true contributions upon American culture? How's that possible? Now, I'm a man who experimented with, fear, with Facebook for all of six months, and this has come to the forefront of my mind. So how can somebody working for the company for years, somebody who attends social good seminars, how can somebody who digests all of the company's ambitions and initiatives, how can an employee never think of this? 
Well, it's relatively easy to explain. If you're in business, you understand that a corporate culture flows downstream. The values of the leaders of a business trickle down to their employees in the form of ethics policies and performance expectations. Again, the Facebook corporation draws no economic benefit from providing this information. Not only that, but providing this information would pose quite a risk to the company, one that just might require disclosure on a future quarterly SEC filing. How? Well, if the investing public were to find out that Facebook constituted a moral hazard, as I fully explained in the second installment of this series, more and more people might just embrace the mindset of Chamath Palihapitiya and forbid their children from ever accessing the platform. Now, before I dive right into why any of this matters to you, I need to take a brief but necessary detour for reasons that I assure you that you'll understand by the end of this podcast. So stick with me here. This will feel like a diversion, but it's critical information to understand. So if I were the type of man who understood human nature, which I am, I might just begin to formulate the following hypothesis. Stick with me here because this is of paramount importance. There are grave societal consequences to misunderstanding the fundamental essence of human nature. Just to be abundantly clear, let me now speak truth. Human beings are fundamentally flawed beyond repair. There is a universal law of human nature, and it is this. Human beings intuitively understand how they should behave. However, their behaviors frequently and consciously depart from this model standard in deference to their own self-interests. This is a universal law that affects all human beings. This is the actual cause of most of the problems we see in this world. So am I saying that everything is not relative? Yes, that's precisely what I'm saying. And to those individuals who reject an absolute standard of morality, allow me to read the words of one of the greatest 20th century theologians, Mr. C.S. Lewis. In one of his books, he writes, Many people say they don't believe in a real right and wrong. These people insist that right and wrong are just myths people have invented. But even people of this kind behave as if they do believe in a universal right and wrong. When they feel they've been wronged, they say, that's not fair, implying that there must be some objective standard of fairness. Isn't the pursuit of fairness the very rallying cultural battle cry we hear all throughout society today? But who are the people desperately in pursuit of this fairness? They're the very people who reject the Judeo-Christian God and his antiquated absolute standard of morality. But if everything is indeed relative, then even the concept of fairness can't possibly exist. If fairness is relative, then by definition, it is unfair. The words of C.S. Lewis were written in the midst of World War II, yet here we are in 2018 dealing with the exact same issues he faced over 70 years ago. As the Bible says, there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Truth is understanding that it is not the surrounding environment that is broken and in need of repair. Truth is understanding that human beings are broken and in need of repair. You don't work on fixing the surrounding environment. You focus on fixing the brokenness of individual man. 
If you misunderstand this foundational truth, you mistakenly embrace a worldview that believes that people are inherently good and that the problems we experience in life are a result of our surrounding environment. Thus, you dedicate all of your efforts to fixing the environment in which we operate. That, my friends, is the mindset of Mark Zuckerberg. I admire his desire to achieve social good and use his platform for good. That is, after all, the first half of the universal law of human nature. We all know in our hearts what is good for society. But here's the reality. Mr. Zuckerberg sees opportunity through the platform of his creation. And as a fallen human being, he is going to pursue his own self-interests. Remember how this in-depth series featured prerequisite instruction? Remember the Masterpiece series? Let me now explain why I am building my entire argument upon the foundation of the fertility of the human heart. Human beings are desperate to seek meaning, identity, and purpose. People spend decades seeking an answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? In this respect, Mark Zuckerberg has found a wellspring of water that answers this question by intertwining self-worth with peer validation, and the two shall become one. Mark Zuckerberg has invested countless hours into constructing his social media platform, but this wellspring is the creation of his own hands. Do you know what the term used to describe an optical illusion caused by atmospheric conditions happens to be? What do we call the appearance of a sheet of water in the desert that's caused by the refraction of light from the sky by heated air? It's a mirage. Man cannot seek identity in the validation provided by his fellow man. His identity will constantly change because the law of human nature that I've described above. An identity is not finite. It is not relative. An identity is infinite and absolute. If you seek identity through that which is temporary, you are only paving the road to a life of perpetual instability. Let me repeat that. If you seek identity through that which is temporary, you are only paving the road to a life of perpetual instability. Now, as a divinely created masterpiece, Mark Zuckerberg is a human being no different than you or me. He has been given a compassionate heart that desires to improve the welfare of anyone and everyone within the sound of his voice. But Mark does not draw his identity as something he has received from his creator. Mark draws his identity by the peer validation that flows from what he believes are the works of his own hands. Let's take a moment to put ourselves in his shoes. Mark Zuckerberg has 100 million Facebook followers. Mark Zuckerberg is the fourth wealthiest man in the United States. He has earned billions and billions of dollars on accounts of his contributions to society. Mark Zuckerberg wins speaking engagements at the nation's most heralded universities. Mark Zuckerberg is revered by millions of people around the world. 100 million followers? Peer validation. Speaking engagements? Peer validation. Reverence of others? Peer validation. Do you honestly believe that a man who has devoted years and years of his life, do you honestly believe that a man who acquired billions and billions of dollars as a result of his labor, do you honestly believe that a man who has won speaking engagements at the nation's most heralded universities on account of his platform creation, do you honestly believe 
that Mark Zuckerberg does not measure his self-worth by all of the peer validation that flows like a river into his mind? All of the peer validation that has he has received on account of his creation? Do you honestly believe that Mark Zuckerberg, when he rests his head upon his pillow each night, doesn't do so without the following thought? Look how rewarding Facebook has been for me. Facebook has given me everything. Life, meaning, purpose. And Facebook can do this for you, too. And since Mark created Facebook, do you really then think that he doesn't logically conclude, I, Mark Zuckerberg, can help bring purpose to your life? As a divinely created masterpiece, Mark Zuckerberg is a human being no different than you or me. But as a peer-validated human being, however, Mark Zuckerberg's opinions are much, much, much more important than mine or yours, and substantially more valuable than any other member of our society. After all, whose perspectives could possibly be more validated than his? I'm spending all of this time analyzing the character and psyche of Mark Zuckerberg because we need to understand the mindset of the man behind the platform. I use Zuckerberg because he's a household name, but just know that I'm speaking of any social media architect from the creators of Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, Google, and YouTube, I'll throw those in there too, any of the software developers working for each respective company. You may think I'm railing on Zuckerberg here, but the critical truth you need to understand is this, as man gets closer to power, we must be more skeptical of his intentions. That doesn't mean we become cynical, We just become skeptical because we know that pride goeth before the fall. Pride is man's greatest sin. The greatest likelihood of becoming proud is through peer validation. Okay, we're very close to coming out of the detour, but throughout this series, I want to make one thing abundantly clear. I never, at any point, suggested that social media is evil. Rather, I am calling to your attention that it is the gravest threat facing modern American culture. I'm in process of outlining how this platform exploits the vulnerabilities of human nature. To loosely translate, that means the platform of social media makes the process easier in which we can pursue our own interests to the detriment of society at large. We should be exhausting all efforts to guard against these vulnerabilities. We should not be capitalizing upon their exploitation This series constitutes a warning, not a verdict. Social media does not actively cause the perils we see in culture. We do. But if no one fully elaborates or explains the risks facing social media to the general public, we are going to remain ignorant of its capabilities as an agent, a potential agent of our own destruction. As anyone in the field of law is aware, ignorance is no alibi. We retain accountability for our actions and more importantly, our inactions. So, we're now back. Let me now apply the lessons of this third installment of the social media series. What do I mean by the great generational influence transfer? Why does any of what I've told you thus far even matter? Allow me to explain. Study after study shows a surge in average time spent on social media in the aggregate. One of the more recent articles I uncovered comes courtesy of Entrepreneur Magazine in an article dated December 14, 2017. The piece is titled, 
how do your social media habits compare to the average person's? The article suggests that the average person spends nearly two hours on social media every day. Social media, according to their definition, is time spent on YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter, not to mention some of the less popular platforms such as LinkedIn, Reddit, Tumblr, uh, Tumblr, excuse me, Pinterest, and Musical.ly, an app that's popular with teens. Further in the article, we find this gem, which is rather illustrative of my concern for the medium of social media. The one hour and 56 minute average is just that, the average person. You want to take a guess at what the average teenager logs in time spent on social media? I'll give you five seconds to formulate your response. The average teenager spends nine hours per day, or over four and a half times the average time spent by the average individual. Are you now beginning to understand the cause for my concern regarding the quality of the content that is being disseminated throughout social media? This isn't just Facebook posts, I'm talking about YouTube uploads too. But think about the likes. I mean, what percentage of the likes of any post is disproportionately weighted in favor of the younger demographics. If the average teenager accesses social media four and a half times more frequently than the average human being, does that mean the average teenager is posting, liking, and uploading videos four and a half times more frequently as well? Mr. Zuckerberg, wouldn't that be helpful information to help America gauge its understanding of the value of the type of content that is being disseminated throughout social media? At the outset, I threw out a guess that maybe 70 to 80% of social media content stems from users under the age of 25. After considering this statistic, though, it might even be greater than that. Could it be possible that I'm understating this? I'd sure love an opportunity to confirm this using the raw data provided by Facebook that I know you have, the raw data by Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat that I know you all have. But this data is nowhere to be found. Huh. It's only logical to assume a correlation between a user's time spent on social media and the volume of his or her engagement as quantified by posts, likes, and shares and uploads. If you're spending nine hours a day on social media, you're probably engaging pretty heavily on the platforms you frequent. If we aggregate all of this data, does Twitter, Facebook, and others, does it simply create a medium that provides undue influence to the most impressionable, idealistic, impulsive, and inexperienced members of our society? I'm not saying this is an affront. I'm merely articulating that social media might just be a platform that essentially transfers the influential microphone that steers culture away from experienced generations in favor of the younger generations who, by definition, have not experienced any of the responsibilities of raising children, paying a mortgage, sacrificing for retirement, or preserving gainful employment. Local and national news outlets alike, they broadcast trending topics on Twitter before their captive audiences. And these reporters occasionally feature sharp and witty tweets that have garnered tons of likes. But have you ever paused to ponder the composition of the platform that is Twitter? Did you know that only 24% of American males and 21% of American females actually engage on Twitter? 
Now consider that the voice of Twitter is defining how politics, culture, societal norms, sports, movies, music, and the arts are discussed. Have you ever considered just how unrepresentative of the swath of the American populace Twitter represents? So of that 24 and 21%, just think of how skewed the Twitterverse is in favor of the youngest members of our culture who consume social media potentially at a rate that is 4.5 times the general public. Why don't we have any of this qualitative data from which to analyze? Could it possibly be because the collective man behind the curtain has all the emotional maturity of a pimply-faced, voice-cracking 15-year-old adolescent boy in pajamas? Could American culture and American discourse be rapidly eroding because we have lent our ears to the opinions and insights of children? Funny you should ask. Just two weeks ago, a 19-year-old gunman entered a Florida school shooting and killing 17 students in one of the worst school shootings in American history. Nearly every American would define this event as a great tragedy that requires a considerable degree of soul-searching as a country. Nearly every American believes that we need to substantially change something about who we are as a people to prevent situations like this from happening in the future. So to whom did we turn in these troubled times? Do you remember? Did not the national news networks parade the impressionable, inexperienced, idealistic, and impulsive opinions of students, students, before the watchful eyes of the American public? Were we not told to listen to the feelings, insights, and ideas of traumatized teenagers who tragically happened to be attending the school that was shot up by this insane lunatic? Were we not meant to question our core by listening to what was on the hearts of minors? Now, how is it possible that a handful of 15, 16, and 17-year-olds could gain a platform and start spouting social policy suggestions before hundreds of millions of American people? Guys, it's not hard to understand. As a medium of communication, social media merely reflects who we are as people. And we have long grown comfortable allowing discourse to be controlled by the least experienced and most vocal members of our culture. So it should only make perfect sense that national news networks would then parade these kids at every turn when discussing what steps should be taken to prevent this from ever happening in the future. As an aside, this is exactly why Donald Trump maintaining an active Twitter account is threatening the office of the President of the United States. With every tweet, President Trump is legitimizing Twitter as a reliable platform for social engagement and policy development. Before long, this is going to undermine the presidency and any efforts to unify the American people by lending a disproportionate degree of influence to people who do not fully appreciate the magnificence of the American experiment. Guys, you cannot blame CNN or NBC for exploiting children when we have lulled ourselves into an environment in which the elders of our culture seek wisdom from their offspring. You think I'm stretching the truth here? According to a 2017 Pew Research Center report, roughly two-thirds of American adults get at least some of their news on social media.
if we can return to the Parkland shooting, let me just illuminate the reasoning skills of one of the teenagers, actually two of the teenagers who were paraded before the mainstream media. If you remain unconvinced in my argument or my stance, this should do a pretty good job clarifying my concerns. Emma Gonzalez is a high school senior who thankfully survived the school shooting. Less than one week after the school shooting, she took to the public square to share her perspective on how we can fix our broken culture. Quote, At this point, I don't even know if the adults in power who are funded by the NRA, I, I don't think we need them anymore. If they don't turn around right now and state their open support for our movement, they're going to be left behind because you're either with us or against us. That kind of sounds like an ultimatum, doesn't it? She sure doesn't seem to be the very open-minded student that we would hope she would be, does it? If you're not with me, you're against me? Let's hope her mindset and her approach are not reflective of the age group she represents. But it does support my contention that the younger generations hold the four eyes in spades. Idealism, impulsiveness, inexperience, and impressionability. Should we really be deferring our collective judgment as a culture to people who problem-solve using ultimatums and threats, blaming entire organizations for the actions of one deranged human being? If I'm not mistaken, all human beings have been given two ears and one mouth. That would seem to imply that listening is twice as important as talking. Yet Miss Gonzalez carries herself in such a fashion as if she represents the entire American mouth, while everyone else represents the American ear. Is this a progression in our national ability to engage in dialogue? It sure doesn't seem to be. Here's another example. Two weeks after the shooting, another major national news network invited a high school junior named Alfonso Calderon to share his thoughts regarding the tragedy. Calderon entered into the public discourse by saying the NRA is, quote, basically killing children. He continued that the NRA is toxic and vile, claiming they do not support the right to life, which I would have to imagine opens up a can of worms to a humanist worldview that largely embraces and promotes abortion. Now, how did the news media hosts respond to these verbal bombs? By saying, quote, We'll continue these conversations down the road. Good luck to you, your friends, your school, your families. Thank you very much for joining us, end quote. No pushback whatsoever. Calderon's message was to suggest that people under the age of 21 are just too irresponsible to purchase their own firearms. He praised Dick's Sporting Goods for increasing the minimum age for gun purchases to 21 during the same interview segment. Just so I'm clear, children under the age of 21 are too irresponsible to buy and own guns. However, they're a perfectly reliable source capable of dictating gun policy in this country. How does that make any sense? But again, we're witnessing the great generational influence transfer. Our conscious decision not to think critically before using social media as a news source directly leads to an environment in which the opinions of children are legitimized by major national news outlets. Why else do you think these national news outlets are so interested in driving you to their Facebook page and their social media sites? They know who the demographics are. They know they're the impressionable people among us. And they want more of these people following them. 
the experiences, the inexperiences of children, their lack of responsibility, their untested opinions. They're now actively shaping and influencing all policies, not just those with respect to the Second Amendment. Can you even imagine just how many social policy issues in America are disproportionately influenced in this fashion? Sure gives you a different lens with which to view our political discourse, doesn't it? Now keep in mind, I'm assuming a completely honest debate in which these children are voicing ideas that are uniquely their own, without the taint or bias of third outside third-party influences. There have actually been multiple reports that suggest politically motivated individuals have been exploiting these traumatized teenagers to advance an agenda they have sought to accomplish for decades. These reports allege that town hall questions might have been completely scripted, and they create a reasonable doubt regarding the authenticity of expressed opinions. Let me just take a moment to wrap my head around this. Politically motivated adults using minors as a means to an ultimate end. What forum could possibly feature an environment in which power-hungry, self-interested elites would use the opinions of those who lack cognitive ability and lack moral agency to advance their own personal agenda? People who might be interested in obtaining a greater supply of young people to strengthen the power of their voice in the intellectual marketplace. In what other form or medium do we actually see this trend happening in society? Hmm. You know, I just can't seem to put my finger on it. Understanding human nature is imperative to understanding the world around you. Understanding the importance of a worldview is imperative to understanding the world around you. Mark Zuckerberg and his social media cohorts reject the notion that human nature is fundamentally flawed, and the proof of this claim lies in their actions and inactions. If you care at all about the public good, how can you possibly withhold the qualitative content analytics from the general public? Things like percentage of posts made by little kids, percentage of likes made by people under the age of 18. According to the analytics firm Bright Insights, there are 3.3 million posts updated to Facebook every 60 seconds. That's almost 5 billion posts daily. And that's just Facebook. What about tweets? What about YouTube uploads? I don't know about you. I never watch YouTube. If over 80% of this content is produced by the very people in almost exclusive possession of the four eyes, how can you not warn the outlying culture against placing undue reliance upon any opinions expressed on these platforms? There's actually only one way to satisfy this question favorably. And that takes us back to worldview. If you believe that human nature is fundamentally good, then elder generations should always yield to the fledgling or younger members of our society. Why? Because younger members have had less time to be corrupted by the outside world. Thus, they must retain a purity that is greater in nature than their parents. So for this reason, using this worldview, it's logical and sensible for the humanists to presume that younger generations hold the answers to their problems. Now remember, this deep dive today that we're talking about only outlines one qualitative metric. I'm only raising the red flag regarding the age of the social media contributor. 
What about their geographic region? What if we came to learn that a disproportionate amount of social media posters originate from urban and not rural areas? Might that also skew their contributions in a similar fashion? I think so. It might also just explain why all regions of America, outside of California, New York, and a handful of major metropolitan cities are referred to as flyover country. Who cares about those people? If after listening to three extensive arguments, you still think I'm crazy for suggesting social media is a threat to the American culture, I want to remind you there's nothing wrong with being resilient. Just be careful about being stubborn. I beg you, please process and understand these connections. Now, I will readily admit I cannot verify my hunches given the absence of social media qualitative content analytics. But I'm very good at analyzing social trends, very good at researching media usage studies and surveys, and very good at identifying the symbolism of what media portrays. So here's the takeaway. Facebook transfers the cultural megaphone away from the seasoned, cautious, and discerning members of our society and hands it to those who lack responsibility, accountability, and judgment. This is not a positive cultural development. In fact, it, it, it's, it's one that actually threatens our stability as a nation. Should we increase our reliance upon the opinions of people who exercise reason and judgment in the same fashion as Gonzalez and Calderon? That's ultimately for you to decide. So consider this my formal warning against using social media to obtain your news. Only a secular humanist would conclude that the answer to our problem of school shootings can be solved by removing guns from the surrounding culture. Again, this is not an affront upon the humanist. It's an acknowledgement that their solution to any problem must lie in a proposed repair to the surrounding environment. A humanist never looks inward because he believes that human nature is fundamentally good. And in this case, the problem isn't us, it's the gun. Now, on the contrary, the prudent man, the wise man, the understanding man understands that we are all broken beyond repair. That is the very reason we have guns in the first place. Perhaps instead of focusing upon inanimate objects, maybe we should address the factors that are poisoning human hearts to the point of taking these types of actions in the first place. But that would require us to change our behavior, which is hard. This would require us to evaluate whether having children outside of wedlock is still a good idea. This would require us to actively parent our children instead of giving them limitless access to violent video games. This would require us to reject television shows and movies that glorify gun violence. Living in a world that lionizes entertainment, that's awfully hard to do. You know what's easy to do? Let's just get rid of the guns. At only 33 years of age, Mark Zuckerberg has been given a remarkable opportunity to make massively positive contributions to the world around him. But he will never be able to accomplish the ambitions of his heart if he misunderstands the basic law of human nature. Even worse, since his compass is broken, he will only steer our culture further and further in the wrong direction. If a man incorrectly travels in a direction that he thinks is right, it is only going to take future navigators a longer period of time to return to the correct destination. Zuckerberg's sentiments at the Social Good Forum expressed, For all the things that are trying to pull people apart, 
if we can focus on strengthening our community, that will help us find common ground. Beautiful as his words may be, his actions in no way, shape, or form support the ambitions of his heart. In our last installment, we actually learned that he's in process of expanding the voice of the young to children as young as five years old. Again, the navigator is headed in the wrong direction, and at 33 years of age, he has never shed the idealism of his youth. So what is my overarching hypothesis? I have no choice but to conclude that Mark Zuckerberg is perfectly happy pioneering a paradigm shift in human communication that features a disproportionate influence emanating from our youngest generations. Not only does his company withhold critical qualitative content analytics from the general public, but he's actively expanding his penetration upon the critically underdeveloped human mind. And most importantly, he wants his platform to be a reputable news source because he believes society's solutions can be found by aggregating the opinions of the most impressionable minds of America's least experienced people. Regardless of what he says, this is precisely where his actions are leading. The truly curious man would take all of this information and ask the following question. Mr. Zuckerberg, what are your true motives and intentions? But that's not a question for me to answer today. I want to remain on the topic of this generational influence transfer. You know, the Bible suggests in two separate occasions in the book of Job that wisdom belongs to the aged and wisdom comes with age. Now, you might not think the Bible retains any degree of relevance to the advanced technological 21st century world, but it does. I would highly recommend reading it. It's the best-selling book in the history of the world, and it is capable of explaining the essence of the human experience and of human nature. I am not asking you to be a Bible-thumping Christian. I'm simply asking you to understand why our culture has fallen so far off track. There's no better way to do this than to read the Bible. If you misunderstand human nature, then you, my friend, are contributing to the American ship steering further and further off course. Facebook is indeed a great medium to share photos and experiences with your friends and family. Twitter, it presents a means in which we can engage in popular culture. But do these perceived benefits outweigh some of their material, grave concerns that the platforms pose to society as a whole? These are the questions every parent should reflect upon before allowing their child to open up a social media account. But, but everybody's on Facebook, so, so my son or daughter will hate me if they don't have access. What parent teaches their child to swim by pushing them off the high dive? Well, actually, to be more accurate, what parent sees millions of children drowning in a cultural riptide and then decides, hey guys, let's go to the beach? Facebook redefines human communication. Facebook acts as a technological drug. And Facebook discounts the influence of the elders of a nation. We're only halfway through the proceedings of my case, so I hope you're enjoying being a member of my court. Whew, that was heavy. Time for a break. Last week, I unveiled my plan to bring you the top 10 songs you've never heard of. Let us now continue with our countdown. Today, I am pleased to bring you the ninth best song you've never heard of. 
and it comes courtesy of a Scottish rock band who many critics believe charted the success path for one of the most popular bands in the early 21st century, Coldplay. Most music enthusiasts are familiar with the sounds of Coldplay, but few appreciate the contributions of the band Travis. In 2001, they released the second single from their album, The Invisible Band. So coming in at number nine on our countdown, here it is, Side by Travis. Someone watching over you They're watching every single thing you say And when you die they'll set you down and take you through You'll realize one day Such a great beat, such great rhythm. It's a great song. Again, that's Side by Travis. If you like that cut, you are most definitely going to like one of their other songs. It's entitled Sing. And if I'm not mistaken, it's on the exact same album, The Invisible Band. That is going to wrap up the time we have to spend together today. Wherever this podcast finds you, I hope you are doing well, enjoying life, and seeking to apply the precious gifts that God has given you so as to attain a fulfilling and enriched life. Take a moment to share this program with a friend. You've undoubtedly noticed it's taken a couple of weeks to get these programs out on the market. This is hard work. I do a lot of research and and a lot of effort goes into the development of this program, and I am a one-man show. I have tremendously high standards, so if the program is not up to my expectations, it doesn't reach the airwaves. I love it. I get to do things on my schedule, and when I'm ready, you get to listen. I don't cut corners to meet artificial deadlines. Again, this is hard work. This is quality content. So share it with a friend, would you? If I could encourage you with only one piece of advice today, it'd be this. Be bold with your faith, strong in your convictions, and courageous in the workplace. have lulled ourselves into an environment in which the elders of our culture seek wisdom from their offspring. 